Good evening, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the magnificent United States of America. Today is the 5th of December and the year is, yes, it is still 2020. Now, what we've been talking about here for the last couple of episodes is this larger arc about aging and diseases and how an associative degradation of the immune system over time is linked to the aging process itself. We talked a lot about how you can get hypo and hyper inflammatory responses based on the poise of the innate immune system, then signaling through antipresenting cells to the acquired immune system, particularly we've been talking about T lymphocytes. So that's where we were last time, and we're going to jump right back into it now. Again, I'm Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry. So we introduced this paper in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences, published in 2020, November, just last month, volume 21. I told you that T-cell development undergoes a processive proliferation and selection in the thymus. This is what I think most of you are well aware of this. It's why T-cells are called T-cells because they're made first in the thymus. Initially, you get double negative cells. These are CD4 negative, CD8 negative. So they're called DNs and they're called thymocytes at this stage. Um, in, within these cells, you get homologous recombination with the VDJ genomic segments of the T-cell receptor, beta chain locus. Once that recombinational rearrangement occurs, double negative cells perform what's known as beta selection, and that moves ultimately through the double negative stages three and four. At the same time, these cells are experiencing expansion and proliferation, and the cellular transitions are also going to be fundamentally different at the level of bioenergetics. So bioenergetically, it is supplied by the induction of the glucose transporter, GLUT1, and of course, that's going to uh, impart an increase in glycolysis once glucose enters into the cell, and also all the genes in glycolysis uh, that code for the proteins that become the enzymes in the pathway also going to be turned on in the cells during this uh, developmental stage transition from DN1, 2, 3, and 4, um, all in, in the thymus. Now, GLUT1 ultimately is downregulated as the cells mature to the more quiescent CD4 positive, CD8 positive, double positive. Those are called DPs. <clears throat> and then what happens, these DPs turn into CD4 positive, CD8 minus, and CD4 minus, CD8 plus, those are known as single positive or SP cells. So there's a complex metabolic networking all involved here, and it's obtained by the expense of a massive bioenergetic stream and it's going to be unique to each of those transitions during the thymocyte development, obviously. So we introduced last time <clears throat> notch signaling. Notch signaling plays a really important role in thymocyte development. So let's get into this. In fact, a mouse study showed that an inducible knockout of notch one gave a developmental block of the immature thymocytes at the CD25 minus CD44 plus, and that's the primary DN1 stage, a double negative stage, just looking at different markers besides the four and eight, you see. There's a consistent expression of NOTCH1 in all hemopoietic stem cells, and that blocks B cell differentiation cold, and it leads to an ectopic development of immature 
double positive T cells in the bone marrow once they arrive there. Apart from the HSC differentiation, those are the hemopathic stem cells, toward the T cell lineage, this not signaling also drives beta selection of the double negative thymocyte itself. So double negative thymocytes atrophy without notch signaling. And that shows a drop then, and now we're back to bioenergetics in the GLUT1 expression, remember this glucose transporter. And there's also concomitant tanking of glycolysis because glucose levels drop. And that eventually leads to, for these cells, programmed cell death. Now, from a paper published in Development in 2019, volume 146, um, Notch is a cell surface receptor. So now I'm going to tell you a little about Notch. Whereas ectodomain obtains signals from the proximal neighboring cells via ligands that are expressed on their surface. So this is kind of an interesting signaling, right? Um, it's almost a paracrine signaling, but now dealing with surface receptors interacting with other cell surfaces adjacent to those receptors, okay? So you have intracellular domain for the notch, and that acts upon... Uh, upon its full agency as a transcription regulator and it adjusts the cell state that's hence been signaled according to the state of the neighboring cells. So it's like a communication neighboring cells deliver through that notch receptor as it signals into uh, the nucleus. Okay, So signaling from the cell surface to the genome, basically, because you're going to the nucleus, is direct, it's linear, and it's devoid of any other signal amplification. So you have no P13, P13 kinase, you have no ATK mTOR pathway, uh, you have no calcium flux. It goes directly as a signal amplification directly into the nucleus. Now, one of the um, characteristics of that kind of signaling, that direct signaling, devoid of any other signal amplification, is that it's very short-lived. And each receptor is used only once to deli upon delivery into the cell, and then it, it's it's no longer functional. It's, in fact, it's destroyed proteolytically. So not signaling dynamics are responsive, very rapidly responsive to a whole range of cellular events. So this is a, basically an overview of not signaling. I'm getting this again from a development paper published in 2019, and I get, I'll give the puts in the show notes. So the ability of a cell to signal depends on its state or fate. And it varies with ligand identity, of course, and the expression levels in the cell surface of the receptor. It's modulated also, this notch pathway, by E3 ubiquitin ligases. Okay, so that's really an important issue here. They can target ligands, actually, for endocytosis. So this is important for this notch signaling. So upon activation, notch is sequentially processed. First, by metalloprotease, and uh, it's got a family called the adamtase family we talked about previously in other biochemistry, and then by a gamma secretase, which we talk about sometimes when we discuss Alzheimer's disease, and that leads to a release of notch intracellular domain. That's also affectionately known with the acronym NICD, notch intracellular domain. Okay, and of course that's going to be kicked out then of the membrane and put into the cytoplasm. Now, once that NICD arrives in the nucleus, it assembles with a DNA binding protein called CSL, 
and another protein, which is actually a coactivator called MAM. That forms a complex and it regulates gene expression. So you got a transcription factor system now generated. So there is some association of this notch domain. You got it? But there's no amplification. Now, among the key target genes, key target genes and uh, effectors of notch, there are these proteins called HESs. HES proteins can act multiple uh, variations depending on the context in which they're modulating cell state and or cell fate. So ligand levels are intimately linked to degradation. Receptor processing is coupled to its activation. In the absence of signal amplification, signal transduction is direct, therefore. And the response of the genome is transient, as I said, turns over quickly because the NICD turns over very rapidly. Now, more about these HES proteins. They're doing some of the major work at the transcriptional uh, factor level. The HES slash ESPL is another basic helix loop helix type of transcriptional repressor. And uh, as, uh, much like NFIL3 that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and it suppresses expression of downstream target genes, for example, tissue-specific transcription activators. So the way to look at it is HES-ESPL directly affects cell fate decisions as the primary notch effector. Now, that was published way back in Journal of Cell Physiology in 2003. Read that paper then, then I brought it back up now. And that was published in uh, March of that year. And the pages are 237. Don't worry, I'll put it in the uh, show notes. Okay, so there's a little bit about not signaling. I think it's very clever signaling. Now, the receptor activation in this whole system is initiated through ligand binding with EGF repeats. And there are 11 to 12 of these on the notch receptor and interacts with a DSL, which stands for delta serrate lag one domain of that notch ligand. The modification of the intracellular tail of the notch ligand by that E3 ubiquitin ligase. And uh, what it does basically is promote the endocytosis of the ligand. Now that's all happening at step one of this translocation step for the NCID, right? So let's continue. There's an increase in the interaction surface, which now also involves another segment of the protein called EGF810. And that's of the notch protein. And then the EGF13 of the ligand. And that's known as a certain mechanism called the cat catch bond, or, you know, as in grab or pre um, apprehend mechanism. Now that allows the receptor ligand interaction. This is all protein protein interactions that we're talking about. I'm giving you authentic biochemistry. So you're here for this, right? It's a receptor ligand interaction resists the pulling forces that are associated with ligand endocytosis. So you see it's slowing down its own degradation by having this uh, catch bond mechanism. So the pulling forces that are exerted onto notch mechanistically modify the structure of the notch receptor, converting it from a closed configuration to an open one. And that renders the, a site called the S2 site of the notch acceptable uh, accessible, excuse me, to that atom protease. It's all at the beginning when these proteases are, are 
getting this NCID off on its uh, journey to the nucleus. So you have this lag-independent cleavage, and that's at the cell surface, of course, and it's followed by an intramembrane cleavage of the S3 site. These are scission sites, that's why they're called S, and that's carried out by the next enzyme. Now, what is it? Remember? That's right, the gamma secretase. That eventually, of course, ultimately results in the release of the NICD into the cytoplasm. Now, finally, the pulling force is produced by the endocytosis of a chimeric delta FSH ligand are too weak to unfold the wild-type domain of that notch um, interdomain. And that, that particular wild-type domain is called the A2 domain, and that's of a VWF moiety. And it's present in a chimeric FSHR A2 notch receptor complex. All of that is in contrast to forces that are sufficient to destabilize if you have a mutant in the A2 domain, which can occur. When that happens, you get release of the NICD and you get no notch signaling. Okay. So again, this is all from that development paper in 2019. Very detailed about how you process the NCID. I just gave it to you. So even though there's no amplification of the signal, there, of course, is a lot of interaction before that NCID makes it to the nucleus, as you would guess, because it's going to be a transcriptional repressor. So we can't have it moving in there just by, uh, you know, free-floating through the nuclear pores, right? It can't move that way. It can't move by mass action. It's got to be an organizational translocation associated with all these protease activities. So now we're going to bring in another thing about notch. Notch, wonderful. Notch is naturally wonderful. So we're going to now bring in the phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase AKT pathway. So notch signaling, what it does is it promotes glucose metabolism in those thymocytes. And it does so ultimately, okay, this is downstream from the whole process I just told you about by activating a P13 kinase. It's the P13 kinase B. Um, and that's all in association with the AKT signaling pathway. So if you inhibit P13 kinase or you inhibit AKT in double negative thymocytes, what do you think happens? Because it's all about glucose uh, utilization and glycolysis. If you inhibit P13 kinase or AKT in DN thymocytes, you tank glucose metabolism, tank glycolysis, okay? So the overexpression constitutionally active AKT1, of course, to show that this is true, what do you think it would do? It would restore glucose metabolism. And that's in a backdrop, backdrop a background of notch-deprived thymocytes, usually by a knockout experiment. Um, and that then will rescue an early pre-T cell development stage, it will, it will rescue that from that block, and that block would be caused by that impaired notch signaling. Okay. So it's not that it's an amplification, it just means that it has a great deal, a, a plenum of activities, a constellation of activities that notch is doing, just by its translocation through the cytosol once in the nucleus, then all the rest of it occurs. So mice impaired with P13 kinase signaling due to a deletion of the um, protein uh, kinase D, uh, PDK1 or both, or from a phosphatidylinositol um, 3 
kappa, delta, and gamma forms of that kinase cascade all have a developmental block, but not at the DN1, at the DN3-4 stage of the thymocyte development. So see, it works congruently, sequentially, and systematically throughout the development of the thymocytes, this notch. So when you look at AKT1 minus AKT2 minus thymocyte, where both loci are knocked out, both alleles are knocked out, you get a, uh, what that manifests is a severe developmental block directly at the DN3 stage, okay? And these double knocked out AKT, DN3 cells show reduced glucose uptake, and they die in response to any T-cell receptor stimulation in vitro. You see now, here I'm giving you some really good insight how T-cells function. They're using their bioenergetics, particularly what kind of carbon source they're using, to help mediate the de development and differentiation of the T-lymphocytes at the very early stages when they're still naive and still starting to utilize a T-cell receptor exactly distal to that recombination of that receptor, okay? This is a fundamental key feature of T lymphocytes. So this developmental defect, which can occur with the notch, would be due, of course, directly to apoptosis because that's what's going to happen. And that's where AKT, that pathway protects thymocytes from cell death, and it does so by carrying out that signaling process and allowing for glucose metabolism. And that's all going down in the beta selection step for T lymphocytes. So the P13 kinase, AKT signaling, is also known to activate, you know, this is canonical, the mammalian target of rapamycin mTOR. And what that does, yep, come on, you gotta remember, it promotes glucose metabolism. Of course, that's required to support cell growth and proliferation of these uh, naive T cells. So any impairment of P13 kinase signaling blocks the transition of the double positive now thymocytes to the single positives, that's going to be CD4, CD8 positive T cells. And now you, I know you, you know where we are now in the pathway, right? All right. Now, P10, which is phosphatase intense and homologue, is, of course, a phosphatase. And it's well known as an important negative regulator of what? The P13 kinase cascade. So thymocytes from mice lacking the microRNA cluster called MIR181. I won't tell you the rest of the name. Yeah, well, MIR181A1B1, okay? When you lack that microRNA cluster, you get a significant increase in the phosphatase. That's the P10 expression because you, you removed that microRNA that normally would uh, destroy the messenger RNA for the P10 during that level of expression, right? Those cells then show a reduced glucose uptake and glycolytic rate, of course. And the mice have a deficiency in the double positive cell population. And because this is right at that bifurcation between CD8 positive, CD4 positive, single, you know, monopositives, what else do you think you would tank? That's right. You get a total lack of natural killer T lymphocytes. So all these findings then put together suggest that the impact of the P13 kinase AKT pathway on thymocyte development um, totally regulates itself via thymocyte metabolism. So again, a little bit more detail here, the stimulation of a of receptor tyrosine kinase or even a GPCR, a G-protein couple receptor, 
is going to lead to the activation. This is how this is the this is the um, uh, pro forma beginning stages of P13 kinase. Leads to the activation of P13 kinase. That leads to PIP3 production. That's phosphat. This is a nice lipid, phosphatidylinositol trisphosphate. All that's happening, of course, at the plasma membrane, right? This is all P uh, phosphatidylinositol cascade biology, biochemistry. So a cytosolic inactive AKT is recruited to the membrane and it engages directly that lipid, that PIP3, right? The phosphatidylinositol trisphosphate. And it does through part of, through a part of its protein called the pH domain, right? We talked about this many times earlier this year. Anyways, all that leads to the phosphorylation of a tyrosine 308 and a serine 473 by a PDK, right? By that particular protein kinase. Also mTORC2, and it does it sequentially and respectively. First PDK1, then mTORC2 both being kinases, of course, card-carrying, authentic uh, card, uh, professional kinases. That results in the full activation of the entire system. So signal termination is usually achieved by PIP3 phosphatase, and which one? It's the P10, right? That, that phosphatase. It doesn't only remove phosphate from proteins, it removes phosphates from lipids. And so you get PP2A and the PHLPP protein phosphatase is also functioning in tandem sequentially to turn off this pathway. There's also a separate endomembrane pool uh, of active AKT, and that probably is there as a constitutive form because it's always activated because it's activated through the engagement of a phosphatidylinositol 3,4 diphosphate. Okay, that's a different form of that uh, highly um, active agent phosphatidylinositide. And that's all through the action of another protein called the SHIP phosphatase, that's S-H-I-P phosphatase, and it's terminated finally by an INPP4 beta. Okay, so I know that this is all good stuff for you because it's good stuff for me. This is what we mean when we say we're doing authentic biochemistry. So if you look at the AKT uh, from the amino terminus to the carboxy terminus, you have a pH domain, and it has multiple sites where there, it could be phosphorylated. Then it has a linker region where there are more sites for um, phosphorylation. And also uh, at that phosphorylation, you could have serines, threonines, and tyrosines phosphorylated on the pH domain and also on the linker region. Ultimately, then that when you reach the AKT kinase domain of the protein, you have at least, let's see, five or six more phosphorylation sites. And again, these can be serines, threonines, or tyrosines, depending on where they are in the sequence. Okay. You can have also lysine sumoylation. You can have glucosamine, uh, 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 so, uh, covalent modification, a glucanac modification of, of uh, certain amino acids in the kinase domain. Proline can be hydroxylated. Uh, another, other lysine residues can be methylated in the kinase domain. And you also get ubiquitinylation of lysine residues. So there's at least um, seven different kinds of covalent modification of either the pH domain, the linker region, the kinase domain, and even the so-called regulatory domain but the regulatory domain is pretty much serviced entirely by mTORC2, 
a little bit by a DNA protein kinase, which is fun functioning um, in an orphan form, and also the CDK2, which is part of the cell cycle. So that's basically the modular structure of AKT1, right? And I'm giving you then all the possible covalent modifications. So this signaling process is as florid as you want to get for any signaling process in the cell. All of this is happening now, subsequent to notch signaling. It's not notch signaling is one of the first stages of T cell development through the negatives and into the monopositive or, or single positive stages, ultimately going to lead to the CD4 positive separated from the CD8 positive lineages, right? Remember, CD4 is all going to go on to make all of those effector cells or helper cells, TH1, TH2, TH17, right? Things like, and the Tregs, okay? So you know where we are now. All right. Now, let's bring in another player. We've got time for another player. Let's make sure. Yep, we do. How about, let's bring in a cytokine. Interleukin-7 is known to play a really important role in the survival of naive T cells as well. Uh, it does so by increasing the expression of an anti-apatotic factor, B-cell lymphoma 2 protein. We all know this affectionately as BCL2. See, cytokine. Um, uh, IL-7 controls the expression of that anti-apatotic uh, factor. Now, besides promoting survival, therefore, it would promote the survival of lymphocytes because turning on this anti-apatotic factor, because it increases the expression of it in naive T cells. Besides promoting survival of lymphocytes, and look at seven signaling also promotes the growth and proliferation of double negative cells at the four stage. Okay, so it's going back one step. That's via the enhancement of the transferrin receptor CD71 expression, which we talked about a month ago, remember? And another protein called uh, CD98, which happens to be actually an amino acid transporter. So mice deficient in either interleukin-7 or interleukin-7 receptor alpha shows defects in T-cell development in addition to signaling via the JAK3 STAT5 pathway. Interleukin-7 can also, oh boy, activate P13 kinase cascade. So one more thing to discuss here quickly. Glucocorticoids bind to cytoplasmic glucocorticoid receptor, which translocates to the nucleus, where it acts as a transcription factor to express genes involved in cell cycle, arrest, and apoptosis. Okay. Leukemogenic events, such as an AKT hyperactivation, or lack of control thereof, have been implicated in glucocorticoid resistance in a subset of patients. With the addition of interleukin-7, it's also shown to induce glucocorticoid resistance in vitro. Isn't this an interesting axis? What, what, the, what, this, what some of the papers I've read show is that there's an intrinsic glucocorticoid resistance, and that's a hallmark, of course, of certain forms of leukemia called T-alls. That arises at the early thymic precursor stage. That's called the ETP stage. Don't worry. And also characterizes a subset of non-ETP uh, 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 leukemias, and that then ultimately is the GC-resistant non-ETP T-all cell lineages. All of that can be identified and augmented by a JAK-STAT signaling pathway that you turn on by stimulating with interleukin-7. Okay, Removing that, removing cytokine IL-7 from the media will sensitize these cells 
and a subset of these ETPTL cells to what? Of course, glucocorticoids, but not to any other type of therapies, okay? So that means interleukin-7 induced glucocorticoid resistance in the subset of uh, T-all, right, that, that particular hemopoietic uh, um, leukemia is independent of genetic drivers of pathway activity and instead reflects a shared biological property that we can just, and we just did, functionally define it. So the addition of the clinically available JAK1-2 inhibitor known as ruxolitinib or the newly developed JAK3 inhibitor uh, that, that now just has a numerical number won't give you, both of those will reverse intrinsic glucocorticoid resistance. Together, what those studies suggest is that the use of JAK inhibitors may increase the efficacy of glucocorticoids in a bi biologically defined subset of that particular leukemia uh, in patient populations. So the reason I brought all that in, we're almost done here, is because I wanted you to see how many diseases can invade into our discussion of how T lymphocytes, um, activation, proliferation, and ultimately um, differentiation can be regulated at the level of hormones, hormonal signaling, and of course, bioenergetics. So we're going to stop here. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 5th of December. Bye for now.